Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, with our penultimate episode of 2023, your AEW World's End Ultimate Preview and a look at NXT entering New Year's Evil. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We will be talking AEW and NXT all over this damn podcast, and we have so much to discuss with you as we get into the final week of 2023 that we're not going to waste any time getting to it. Allow me to remind you off the top here that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also where you can DM and tweet us questions and comments for the show that hopefully will get on the air. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up. You will get exclusive audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to the major television shows and exclusive news every single week. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. While I have you off the top, I do want to let everyone know nominations for the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties, are officially closed. And what that means is that ballots for the awards will be going out later this week. Keep your eyes peeled on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast for that ballot. We will have voting go through the weekend into the new year, and we will stop it at some point early next week. At that point, Vintage Chris Vanini and yours truly, the Silver King, will tape our 2023 Getting Over Awards episode as we hand out meaties to the best, brightest, and also worst and dimmest from the last calendar year. This is a show, and this is a ceremony that you are not going to want to miss. So with all that said, folks, let's get into today's show because we have an absolute ton to talk about in the world of professional wrestling. And excuse me if my voice sounds a little hoarse because Vintage and I just spent yesterday talking about everything that happened in the year of our Lord 2023 when it came to professional wrestling. Our 2023 year in review episode is in our feed awaiting your ear holes. It is As much performance-enhancing audio as we've ever provided in a single episode, we somehow managed to eclipse three hours talking about the year 2023. Make sure you listen to that, and then you can go ahead and continue listening to this as we go ahead and break down everything that happened from AEW and NXT this past week. Now, given this is an ultimate preview episode, we are going to save that, of course, for the end of the show, which means we're going to kick off with NXT. We'll then move to AEW and first discuss a bunch of items that have absolutely nothing to do with World's End, then a couple that are tangentially related 
to World's End. And of course, we will do the ultimate preview to wrap up the show. That means more timestamps than usual in our episode description, which you are going to want to check. If you happen to be listening later in the week and you just want to hear the ultimate preview right before that pay-per-view begins, or if you only want to hear AEW or NXT, you have the ability to jump around. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. With that said, let's kick things off with NXT. And obviously, this was a taped episode, but it was interesting to me that it had some of those old NXT on WWE Network vibes, just the way everything flowed together, the transitions from one segment to another, particularly the final two segments of the show, which were the NXT underground match and then a face-to-face that kind of wrapped up the episode. So let's go ahead, dig into it. This is technically like a preview for NXT New Year's Evil next week, although we're not going to necessarily do it in the same way, of course. We are doing World's End, but this is the final episode before we get New Year's Evil as WWE runs that entire week of special shows after taking the majority of the final week of 2023 off. So like I said, let's dig into NXT. Trick Williams and Carmelo Hayes commiserated backstage with Melo feigning like he was upset. Ilya Dragunov got injured. Trick thought about pushing the match back just to make sure he fought him at 100%. Melo told him, you got to strike while the iron's hot because the only thing that matters is actually winning. From a fighting sports standpoint, I mean, Melo was right on. It's really tough to argue with that logic. And it actually did seem to be genuine coming from Hayes in this segment. Later backstage, Ava was interviewed for an update on Dragunov. She said there's been nothing that has been said to her, and he will just have to decide for himself whether to compete in the match. Since NXT interviewers are now going to her, some position or level of authority needs to be clarified. You can't just have someone backstage making things happen being asked questions, relating answers potentially from Shawn Michaels if you don't know their role or what they are representing. So they're going to need to clarify what Ava is and who she's representing and what she's actually doing when 2024 begins. Dragunov was later found in the parking lot wearing a neck brace saying he was looking for Williams. So we learned there's going to be a Ridge Holland interview next week. And then NXT ended with a face-to-face between those two guys in a boardroom. Trick signed the contract. He said, I'll push the match if you need more time. Dragunov said, ultimately and unfortunately, nothing and no one can stop me. He removed the neck brace. He signed the contract. Short, simple, impactful, somewhat impressive, actually, just the way they worked head-to-head with each other. There's really not much more to say about it, though, because nothing really happened. I do want to see the match next week, and I am excited for that to main event New Year's Evil. Lyra Valkyria and Blair Davenport did a sit-down interview that obviously got contentious, with Blair saying she had to force people to pay attention to her while Lyra got one opportunity after another basically handed to her, especially when it came to main roster talent like Becky Lynch and Rhea Ripley. Fair point, that is accurate. Davenport then put herself over for not just winning the Iron Survivor Challenge, but never taking a fall in the match. I never actually realized that. That's a good point by her, and not a great job by commentary, unless they said it and I missed it, of never mentioning that this entire time. It all went on from there. Solid segment from start to finish. A little bit too scripted for my liking. I always have to remember when things like this happen. It's NXT. It's developmental. And while that's a fair criticism, you're going to get that more on NXT than you do on the main roster in WWE or in AEW or anything else, because they're literally learning how to do this. So I always have to kind of contextualize that for myself. We had Eddie Thorpe against Dijak in an NXT underground match. Thorpe was in war paint 
and the crowd was hype. They really were feeling this with the lights out and the spotlight on. He hit a German suplex right at the bell and dominated early with multiple submissions until Dijak broke a triangle with a Liger bomb. Thorpe hit a perfect brain buster and tried a German suplex off the canvas to ringside, but Dijak actually landed on his feet. He slid Thorpe off the apron and hit Feast Your Eyes. Dijak got pissed that Thorpe wasn't down for the count, so he beat up a couple dudes randomly at ringside. Then he grabbed his belt like off of his waist to strike Thorpe, only to get countered into Manifest Destiny, which is basically like a paradigm shift. Thorpe started beating him with the belt and was about to choke him with it, but instead put him in a sleeper. So Dijak bent down and ran him into the exposed post because there were no ropes, obviously, for this match. Thorpe countered a powerbomb outside into a hurricanrana, flinging Dijak onto the floor and hitting his running elbow off the canvas before another manifest destiny at ringside. The referee tried to call a TKO. Dijak stopped that by grabbing his throat. That was a really cool moment. Thorpe jumped off the canvas onto his back for a sleeper, and Dijak ran him backwards into the post and into the barricade, but he refused to release. So Dijak, with Thorpe on his back, climbed up the steel steps, which were positioned right next to the announce table. He turned around, ready to slam him backwards. Instead, Dijak lost consciousness a second time, and Thorpe flung him through the table with a third manifest destiny. The referee could not revive Dijak, and he called the match for Thorpe via knockout. So NXT Underground is a concept executed to perfection. It just is. They took the failed Raw Underground deal, turned it on its head, and made it, as far as I'm concerned, a can't-miss production that is now two for two in completely delivering. Dijak looked incredible in defeat, and Thorpe was again defined with a huge victory. I'm not sure how this could have been done any better. Like, okay, maybe that's not true. Stronger sequences would have been nice. And obviously, if you put better, quote-unquote, wrestlers in a match like this, and I'm not degrading either of these guys, but like imagine if you did the same match concept with John Moxley and Brian Danielson, just like as one example, and you could pick Chad Gable and Gunther. You could choose anyone. If you did that, then okay, the ceiling's going to be even higher than it already was here. But this was executed perfectly, four stars, A-, minus, and I would call this a must-watch match from the week just because of its uniqueness. The visuals are great, the execution's great, and both guys got over I almost wish Thorpe only wrestled in NXT Underground matches because when you put him in a regular ring, I'm not saying he's unimpressive, but it doesn't feel like he matters that much and his gimmick just doesn't hit the same way as it does when the lights are off and he's wearing war paint. He looks legitimately like a warrior. Regularly, he just looks like a Native American guy who wrestles and represents his culture. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. It's just... It really hits when it's NXT Underground. And speaking kind of of that, one item I did want to reference here is Thorpe's finisher now being called Manifest Destiny, which to my understanding was also the name of the move when he used it in NJPW Strong. Probably the last time most of us heard that term was like middle school or high school. And for those who don't know or forget, it refers to the belief held largely by white Americans that settled in the South and then West across the nation back in the day, that they were superior and they were allowed, and it was their destiny, which is why it's part of the term, to go ahead and spread themselves across the country. And while doing so, they annihilated, you know, Native American people, lands, cultures. The idea 
behind using this term for Thorpe is to reclaim it. And I'm certainly no one to tell him what to do in that regard. Trust me, I'm not saying anything. But it does feel like it's something that Vic Joseph or someone on commentary should have been instructed to mention as part of the call. Like Thorpe reclaiming the ring with Manifest Destiny. Otherwise, in a silo, it was strange to hear that term being used with a Native American wrestler three times during one match. It's no one's fault. It's not an issue or anything like that. I'm just saying for people who know what that means, it feels like it should have been contextualized in a way where it's like he's reclaiming this, it's now his, and that's why it's being used. Maybe they do that another time. Maybe there's a vignette coming up where he explains that and this was just the first time it was being mentioned. It just hit me in a way where I thought, you know what? It would be cool if they explained that a little bit more or allowed him to verbalize what it means to him to have that move and call it that. So that's just my perspective on it. A cigar man at IT Guy 26 wrote him, has Dijak been reinvented to the point that he's main roster ready? I would say mostly yes. Like he still needs a gimmick that's going to translate more to the main roster than 80s villain. So if they can tweak and adjust what he is and get that gimmick main roster ready, he could easily be called up. Like he's good to go. But at the same time, do they really need another Haas wrestler on the main roster right now? What you have to remember when it comes to WWE call-ups, and Triple H, Paul Levesque has said this frequently, call-ups are not only about who is ready and will they make an impact on the main roster. It's filling slots. So let's make believe you're a baseball team as an example. And I always use baseball as an example, even though I know much more about football and basketball, but we'll use baseball as an example, okay? Let's say the best player in your minor league system is a first baseman, right? But you're down a third baseman or you're down a shortstop. You're not gonna call the first baseman up to play one of those other positions just because he's the best guy and the next one ready. You're gonna call up your next third baseman. So that's a reason why someone like in the past, let's say, Apollo Crews might get called up where Finn Balor is still in NXT for six months after that. It's because they had a need for a speedy, athletic, mid-card, or maybe even undercard type of guy, as opposed to a main event level talent at that given time. It's also why you saw a lot of women get called up during the last WWE draft and fewer men, because they badly needed to build depth in the women's division, didn't need to do so as much for the men. You'll also notice a lot of the men who got called up at that time were anywhere between potential upper mid-carders to lower mid-carders. That's because they needed to fill out that part of the roster. Tag teams as well, actually, got called up. They needed to fill out the tag team division. They did not need to bring in a Carmelo Hayes or a Braun Breaker because when you call those guys up, they need to immediately be competing at least in the mid-card title division, if not working their way up the roster to potentially be main eventers in two years or so. And that's why different people get called up at different times. Dijak, is he ready? Yes, he's been ready. When he got called up last time, he was ready. He just got saddled with a shit gimmick. So for him, it's all about the gimmick. And not just that, They when they have a need for hosses, like big, meaty wrestlers, that's when he's going to get that opportunity. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't think it's right now. So hopefully that answers your question. Uh, Nathan Frazier, 
fought Braun Breaker. Frazier was talking shit to Axiom, happy that Breaker didn't win in the year-end awards. Braun was obviously behind him. It got contentious. They made the match. The gimmick of Frazier, like writing checks with his mouth that his ass has to catch, has been working recently. I like that a lot. Axiom also had another funny line here where he said he was winking at Frazier to warn him. Obviously, he's in a mask, so, you know, haha. Uh, there was a fun rope running spot where Braun kept teasing a spear, but Frazier kept avoiding it. The match had a lot of power and speed spots that went both ways. Breaker caught Frazier flying for a snap world's strongest slam. Frazier countered a spear with a super kick, but he missed a Phoenix splash and Braun caught him recovering with a spear for the win. Baron Corbin nodded while watching this backstage. This is what I talk about when I say there is no excuse regardless of the company, to do a match without a storyline. They set this up in 60 seconds earlier in the same show and delivered something immensely fun given both of their talent levels. Breaker obviously had to get the win, and that was totally fine, but this was the second or maybe third, depending on your taste, best match on the entire show, and it was set up with a 60-second backstage segment. That's really all you need sometimes. Carmen Petrovic fought Cora Jade. Petrovic hit a great falling roundhouse kick to the back of Jade's neck, very similar to what Zia Lee does. Cora sold a knee injury for a second, but then she forgot about it, hitting her double underhook DDT for the win. Jade went to hit it again when Gigi Dolan made the save, which was teased last week in the locker room. I didn't mind Cora being dominant here, but forgetting to sell an injury after just a few seconds was not good. And that's part of that developmental process where you say, oh, they look really good in the ring. What are they missing? That's an example of something she's missing, learning to sell when you're giving a, given a kayfabe injury in the middle of a match. So she has to do better on that. Uh, Carmen, I would say, did well enough, but there really wasn't much to judge there. Ariana Grace visited Ava outside of HBK's office, uh, asking about Roxanne Perez's attack last week, saying that she was assaulted and believes Roxy should do anger management. Ava informed her that they were actually taking action already by granting Perez's request for a match between them at New Year's Evil. Good character work by Grace once again. There's something to the cadence of Ava's speech that could probably use some work if she's going to be in a role like this. And one thing I've noticed with WWE and wrestling companies in general is they never really seem to go about trying to fix some of those speech patterns that wrestlers have that maybe don't work. There are people out there that specialize in this and wrestlers just like actors could benefit from a speech pathologist or another similar job that I don't know what it's called, but speech pathology is the one that I do know. So just an idea, not just for her, but for other people. There's not just her. It's, it's literally probably eight to 10 wrestlers on NXT, more than a handful in AEW. Main roster on WWE, we're pretty good right now, but a lot of people can benefit from that. Heritage Cup saw Noam Dar defending against Josh Briggs. No one seconded Briggs as he requested last week. Dar was saved by the bell while in a powerbomb as Briggs dominated round one. Dar later had him in a triangle choke with the referee not counting Noam's shoulders as they were firm on the canvas, but Briggs lifted him to escape, hit a massive lariat to win the first fall. Briggs got his nose busted open during commercial and ate half a Nova roller to end round three at ringside. Briggs knocked Dar out with a haymaker only to get hit in the back of the head by Lash Legend with a spit bucket. Dar covered and Briggs kicked out, but Metaphor threw the bucket in the ring and Briggs just picked it up, kind of like a caveman, looked at it, goes, oh, there's a weapon, I'll use it. <laughs> Hits Dar with it and gets disqualified. So he loses the Heritage Cup match despite leading 1-0 in round four. Now, I enjoyed the match for the contrast in styles. 
And I even like the finish to play into Briggs now twice just being this dumbass babyface. First last week for not letting his own crew get his back when Heritage Cup matches need supporters and seconds. And then he gets disqualified in the match that he had no business getting disqualified in that he was leading in the first place. I thought it was pretty good stuff from top to bottom. It went ahead to prove what I've been saying for a while. Briggs has a high ceiling and Brooks Jensen simply does not. I might change my take on that in a second because Jensen and Fallon Henley, they tried to make Briggs feel better backstage with Jensen realizing Briggs truly wants to be a singles competitor and Henley needs her space to tackle her career. So he suggests it's time for us to split up. They all agreed they're family forever. They love each other, but they went their separate ways. So I go on to say what I just said about Jensen a moment ago. And yet in this segment, he was the star. Let's not get that twisted. He ran this entire segment, both verbally and with his facial expressions and his emotions. So maybe I was a little bit too harsh on him last week. Maybe there is something there, but how about we do this? How about we cut this guy's hair and we give him a gimmick that he can claim and build upon because whatever he looks like and is now, that ain't gonna work. I'll also mention that NXT clarified the stipulation in the Tiffany Stratton match for next week. The loser is the servant or ranch hand of the winner for one day. That's way better than how it came across last week. First, that it works both ways, not just if Henley loses, she's the servant for Tiffany, but also that it's only 24 hours, which completely differentiates it from the Cameron Grimes storyline with LA Knight. I do think doing the 24-hour gimmick, you're guaranteed to get a really fun video package one week, and then the storyline continues playing out the week after that. It's a much better way to do it. And again, it's different from what they've done previously, even though the concept is very similar. Chase U fought out the mud in an all or nothing match. The stipulation here was that Chase U would somehow get out of debt with a win. That made no sense. But if OTM won, Chase would pay back his winnings from the dice game and OTM would get a shot at the titles held by D'Angelo family. Andre Chase was disheveled throughout. As Duke Hudson was rolling, Chase tagged himself in with confidence only to eat a super kick and an assisted spinebuster for the loss. Hudson stalled trying to help and got bounced off the apron. OTM, they remain green as hell, and they're nowhere near ready for the title match that they're getting. I just don't understand exactly why this is being booked this way. Plus, as I said last week, the creative is convoluted as hell. I'm, I'm just really not into this. I like the Chase U gimmick that they're doing with being in debt and Andre Chase getting them in trouble and all that. That completely works. But everything that's happened since then, it's just, like I said, it's convoluted. It's a little bit confusing. Joe Gacy fought Joe Coffey as Coffey was making his entrance. Gacy just simply walked to the ring through the crowd, which was actually kind of unique. The fans had fun with multiple Joe type of chants. Hank and Tank eventually even the sides as Gallus tried to take advantage. Coffey hit the Glasgow sendoff, but Gacy ducked all the best for the bells, countering with a handspring lariat for the win. He kept his original entrance music after the bell, largely the same wrestler, but there's no question this seems to be getting over. The fans were cheering for him. I think they got to change the music. They really should change the look as well. He should not be wearing tights. You got to get this guy in pants or shorts or just do something else with him because it doesn't work. The look and the, the music and all this, this package that they've created for him, it's the one he's been using. If you're going to change the gimmick, you got to change the rest of it as well. So Hopefully they make some adjustments in the future. Next, we had Drew Gulak leading a series of promos from the No Quarter Catch crew 
where they basically stated their intent to show no mercy, take everyone in NXT out, and specifically when it came to Dragon Lee and the Legato boys, make the territory a no-fly zone. Then they did the same hand gesture that Gulak used for his old catch point stable in Evolve. So it's clear Shawn Michaels is letting him just run with that gimmick using a different name. And this definitely worked. It's the most interesting Gulak has ever been in WWE. I know some of you love the PowerPoint presentation stuff, and I did too. But from a taking a guy serious standpoint, like this is the most legitimate he's been. And he actually has a crew behind him that makes sense. The trio works. They have potential in the ring and out of the ring. The name is too long, as we've said. No quarter catch crew. It's ridiculous. Call them no quarter or no quarter crew. It's just better. It's shorter. It's easier. That's a minor nitpick on something that's mostly working for me. The faces later took the challenge. They wanted to prove high-flying wrestling was better than ground-based wrestling. Electra Lopez came up with the Legato boys putting her over for being successful in NXT. I don't know what show they're watching, She's basically only lost since they split. They haven't really accomplished anything whatsoever. Uh, Lola Vice was there too, but she was like rolling her eyes, largely disinterested in the entire deal. Maybe they're teasing a split between them with Lopez going up to the main roster, rejoining Santos Escobar in the new Legado del Fantasma. That could work. Let's remember what I said earlier. The call-ups are based on spots. Well, what do you have? You have LWO with Rey Mysterio, Wild and Del Toro plus Carlito and Zelina Vega. You could also potentially say Dragon Lee maybe is part of that. Then you have Santos Escobar and you have Humberto Carrillo and Angel Garza. Well, if you want to do faction on faction, you need a woman to counter Zelina Vega. Electra Lopez would make a lot of sense in that spot. I could see it happening. I'm not saying it will happen. But based on this and the way Lola Vice was acting, maybe that is the plan. Uh, let's move to the NXT breakout tournament. Riley Osborne fought Lexus King in a semifinal. Trey Bearhill watched at ringside seated with Thea Hale and JC Jane in the student section rooting for Riley. Osborne hit a really unique standing corkscrew. King answered with a twisted backbreaker. Bearhill wound up distracting King as he attempted a superplex, allowing Osborne to push him down and quickly hit a perfect shooting star press for the surprise one, two, three. I wish they got more time so that Riley could have shown off more. He kind of deserved a spot in the finals. But you got to build the guy so that if he actually wins, you're excited to see him with the contract. But it's great that Lexus's insertion into the tournament was for a storyline and not for him to win, which I think everyone expected once he entered. Trey briefly attacked after the bell, but not much happened. So we're going to see that match in the new year. And of course, Osborne advances to the finals. The second semifinal was Tavian Heights against Oba Femi. There was a really nice Uranagi backbreaker early by Femi. He then threw heights across the ring and hit a pop-up powerbomb for the dominant win. Real impressive physical performance from him. There's still a lot left to be desired in terms of ring work. He's still immensely green and kind of clunky. There's going to be a massive contrast in styles for this final match, Riley Osborne against Obafemi. But these are the right two guys to be fighting for that contract. Oba looked good. Riley looked good. How they're going to look and work together and how much time they're going to get That'll determine whether this is successful. I will say the men's breakout tournament has been more successful than the women's equivalent. Neither of them, though, has have been great. I've said this multiple times over the last few weeks. And that's disappointing because prior breakout tournaments have been better, more attractive, with better matches, and more people getting over. I don't really feel like anyone has actually gotten over from either of the breakout tournaments. 
And before we wrap up NXT, I just wanted to mention they gave some of their own year-end awards, which I believe were based purely on fan votes. Tag Team of the Year for NXT was Creed Brothers. Female was Tiffany Stratton. Male was Ilya Dragunov. Match was Dragunov against Carmelo Hayes at No Mercy. And then the moment was The Undertaker showing up on October 10th. All of these are right on. Literally no notes. They're the correct winners across the board. Now, regarding New Year's Evil, just to kind of wrap this up, let's go ahead and just make some quick picks for the matches that are scheduled for next Tuesday. Ilya Dragunov against Trick Williams for the NXT Championship. I have Dragunov retaining the title. It is a spot where they could put Williams over and call Ilya up. It would make a lot of sense to do that. Then you could go ahead and build Trick and Mello uh, for the NXT title at Stand and Deliver on WrestleMania weekend. But I just don't think that they're going to have Dragunov drop the title in a situation like this on television. So again, Dragunov uh, retains there. Lyra Valkyria against Blair Davenport for the NXT women's title. Davenport, great challenger. Valkyria just won the title and beat Becky Lynch to do so. I truly do not think it makes much sense for her to go ahead and uh, drop the title here to Blair on TV at the start of 2024. So I'm going to have Valkyria retaining as well. And that does lead us to a quick question about the Iron Survivor challenges. It does kind of reduce their importance if these people keep winning the challenges and then getting title matches for a TV episode only to not win titles, right? Like you go ahead and win a match of that high quality. That should be the WrestleMania weekend challenger or a premium live event challenger or something like that. It does ring a little hollow that you win that huge, really competitive, difficult match And then you just get a title shot on TV the first week of 2024. Maybe that's just me. Tiffany Stratton against Fallon Henley in the servant or ranch hand uh, situation. These always work better when the heel wins. I do think a lot of fans would like to see Tiff get her comeuppance, but I don't really think it makes sense to do that here. So I'm going to go ahead and have Tiffany Stratton get the win. Obafemi against Riley Osborne in the NXT men's breakout tournament finals with the winner getting a title shot. With Dragunov being my pick to retain, I think Femi winning as a heel makes a lot of sense. You're also going to see some meat slapping if those two go head to head. And it would not be by any means a offense for Oba to fall to Ilya. I mean, that just makes sense. Dragunov's, you know, the best in NXT right now. Ariana Grace against Roxanne Perez. Roxy will win that. Uh, Dragon Lee, Wild Del Toro against No Quarter Catch Crew. You really should be putting no quarter over if you're trying to establish them by getting a win here. But Dragon is the new North American champion. The other two guys are on the main roster. The baby faces should probably win. And lastly, this is not a match, but interview with Ridge Holland. I am very curious to see what they do there. So that's your quick preview for NXT New Year's Evil. With all of that said, let's go ahead and move over to AEW. And as I mentioned, we're going to start with stuff that has nothing at all to do with World's End, then we'll cover items that tangentially relate to World's End before moving into the ultimate preview itself. As always, we're mixing up Dynamite Rampage and Collision just based on storyline. On Rampage, there was an international title match, Orange Cassidy against Rocky Romero. Orange got caught with Strong Zero with Trent Beretta at ringside watching. Cassidy then caught him with Orange Punch and Beach Break for the win to retain the title. They did a three-way hug after the bell. Nice match, strong back and forth in the finish. 
but forgettable. On Rampage, Chris Statlander was interrupted backstage by Stokely Hathaway, who tried to wedge drive with clear bullshit between her and Willow Nightingale, though we made a fair point about her being stuck in mediocrity with best friends when she should be on her own doing better things. I mean, that was just accurate. On Collision, we had a trios title match, the acclaimed against Top Flight, not Max Caster's best by any means, actually probably one of his worst in 2023. Caster caught action Andretti in a counter with a roll-up win. So the booking was to bring Acclaimed back after all of this time away, you know, for injury and storyline, and then have them win their first defense with a surprise roll-up, possibly with a pull of the tights against Top Flight. Did not do anything for me at all. On Dynamite, Top Flight was just getting into a decently interesting promo, actually, when Orange walked up saying, Clearly, they all wanted a match, so they're going to do a six-man next week. Rocky had a fun line about Orange doing the same thing to him last week, and then Andretti just crushed a bottle of water. Obviously, he is a hydro homie. On Rampage, Angela Parker finally asked Ruby Soho out for a drink. Soraya came up saying that she wasn't there to fight, but rather apologized to Ruby, who she still wants by her side, even if Cool Hand has to come along with her. Then she sent Ruby off to go get gifts or something, only to call Parker a piece of shit, saying basically behind her back, that Ruby was hers and he couldn't have her. They had me in the first half thinking like this might actually be interesting. It might actually result in something, but it was the same old shit. On Dynamite, Soraya interrupted a Ruby promo saying she got her a gift for her birthday, Harley Cameron, who then pulled out a knife and laughed. I shit you not, that's what this was. I guess QTV is totally over, so they're trying to use her in this somehow. Harley's entertaining. I've said this the entire time. But I mean, they got to do something that actually matters and makes sense. And that did not. It was almost like she was a human female version of Chucky. It was just weird. On Rampage, there was a AAA mega title match, Elio Del Vikingo against Black Taurus. This was the main event with two non-contracted talents fighting for another promotion's title. Vikingo did a sky twister off the top rope and then a springboard poison Rana and a leaping crucifix spike driver. The last two completely no-sold for a spear by Taurus. Then he did a standing avalanche Falcon Arrow. I guess you could call it that, plus a powerbomb literally to the back of Vikingo's neck. Vikingo came back with a sliding Meteora through the ropes, which looked awesome. And then an extra assisted Canadian Destroyer, plus the 630 Centon to retain the title. Super fun match, zero doubt about that. Significant parts of it were just Taurus like waiting and waiting for Vikingo to do a move. I appreciate the athleticism and skill, but it was not what I would call an excellent match as it just completely lacked storytelling or any other elements aside from high flying. 3.5 stars B, but a totally worthwhile watch. On Rampage, the Hardys fought the kingdom. Rick Knox got involved outside, taking a steel chair away from Matt Hardy, which resulted in a distraction back inside the ring, allowing Matt Taven to roll him up for the win. Unremarkable match with no reason for it happening, just to give the kingdom another win, but having it come via roll-up didn't even build them up. It's just frustrating that the Hardys are being used as pure, pure jobbers, and they can't even book it right so that Kingdom gets a substantial win. Like, what's the point in doing it if it doesn't matter? All right, now let's move into all the content from TV that was tangentially related, but maybe not 100% directly related to World's End. On Dynamite, Roderick Strong and the Kingdom unveiled a string chart backstage with Strong promising to prove MJF was the devil and expose him sooner than later. It was a takeoff of Charlie from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, at least I think that's what the point was. But this was basically the same thing we've been getting for weeks. I actually wish they gave us this as like a two or three minute extended pre-taped video package or something, because then it could have been fun with them putting the chart together, coming up with crazy conspiracy theories. Instead of like actually entertaining us with that, they just did this as a total throwaway. On Collision, we had Keith Lee against Brian Cage, 
There was a promo from Cage on Rampage setting this up by calling Lee sloppy. Keith got clowned online for wearing a pink Santa hat to the ring. I didn't understand the issue with that at all, especially when you're going into this match and you're having, oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. And Keith has always been a bit corny in WWE and NXT and in the independence. That's just who he is. He's like a comic book nerd. He'll admit that. The guy wore a pink Santa hat. What's the big deal? I mean, give me a break. Uh, Cage had a nice tornado DDT early in a 619 later. Then he took Lee off the top with a beastly superplex plus like, I'll call it an F 2.5. Prince Nana handed him a cinder block in a regular match for no reason, only for Keith to basically hit his first offense of the match, a big bang catastrophe and get the win. After the bell, Lee said he's been trying to send a message, but would make his message clear on Dynamite. And that never happened because we never actually saw Keith Lee on Dynamite. The booking here was awful. The goal of this match should have been to boost Keith's stock back up as much as they could to make him a legitimate opponent for Swerve Strickland after being mired in mediocrity. And that's being kind for the last 12 months. The guy spent most of the last 12 months teaming with Dustin Rhodes of all people. Instead of trying to build Keith up by giving him a bunch of offense and having him go toe-to-toe with Brian Cage, they had Cage kick the shit out of him for nearly 10 minutes, only for Lee to fall into the win with one late counter in his finisher. The entire point is to feed Keith to swerve, yet instead of making him a delectable, medium-rare steak, they left him on the stove too long. Now he's tough and chewy and he's worthless. I just don't know how you go into that match with this booking. I thought that was terrible. On Collision, Big Bill started a promo with a funny line about diverticulitis sounding fake. Ricky Stark said the number one contendership was obviously void, but Chris Jericho stepped up, refusing to forfeit his opportunity and promising to find a partner to take the titles from them. I actually thought this was a really fun, really quick backstage confrontation. On Dynamite, the Don Callis family hit the ring for a Boxing Day celebration with four paintings covered in the ring. Powerhouse Hobbs got one with Callis dressed like Tupac throwing up West Side. Uh, Kanosuke Takeshka had one with a sword and Callis covered in tattoos. Kyle Fletcher got one of them boxing kangaroos. Callis said the family was complete. And after a short delay, Sammy Guevara made his return from concussion and paternity leave, seeming none too happy with Callis, who said he sent a present to the family that clearly went undelivered. Then Sammy unveiled his painting, which had the entire family surrounding him and his newborn. Guevara was angry that his baby was depicted on a painting, which like, why are you getting angry over that of all things? Callis said he's not mentally capable of being a parent. Guevara correctly pointed out Hobbs beat Chris Jericho and Takeshka beat Kenny Omega twice. Yet no one remembers those because all that anyone cares about is Callis because he makes it all about him. So Callis called him out for dropping the ball and not working for five months, saying he could choose his other family or the Callis family. Hmm. I wonder what Sammy is going to do. So Callis got shoved after saying Guevara would be a failure as a parent. So the family attacked and Jericho made the save, clearing the ring, smashing all the paintings, leaving the last one for Sammy to destroy with a bat. Then they hugged only for Starks and Bill to attack. Then the fucking lights went out because the lights have to go out two times per episode. Minimum, it's contracted, I guess, or something like that. With Darby Allen and Sting returning to clear the ring, Jericho also delivered two awful bat shots to Bill. It was clear from the second that Jericho said he would find a new partner on Saturday that it would transpire this way. I mean, maybe not in this exact type of segment, but that Sammy Guevara would be his partner. It made sense just because Callus' problem, it now exists with both of them, Sammy being the one tie that makes the most sense to put both storylines together. This on Dynamite, though, as a segment, was immensely convoluted. 
That said, I'm going to give AEW a break because they needed a tight turn with World's End later in the week. They had to cut a match and then build a new match. So it can be excused to that degree. The callous part, though, went on way too long. Even so, I'd say it accomplished its goal. Sammy turning back babyface after literally turning on Jericho, though, was hysterical because this guy is only 30 and he's already approaching big show territory with heel and face switches. It's never worked for him as a babyface. Maybe the eighth time is a charm. Maybe with Sammy coming back, it leads to JAS reforming. But then they're doing the separate thing with Daniel Garcia. Yet even though they're doing something separate with Garcia, he's still with 2.0 and Jake Hager. It's just all a mess. We'll get to what match resulted from this later in the show. On Rampage, Sky Blue fought Queen Amanada. Typical shit with Sky getting a win over a non-contracted talent. Just seemingly to boost her resume. She went via submission with a dragon sleeper, which I guess she's now added to her repertoire now that she's a heel. On Collision, Thunder Rosa and Abaddon fought Julia Hart and Sky Blue. This stemmed from the storyline last week. Rosa entered in a low rider and looked like herself again in face paint. Thunder ran Sky into Julia while in a tree of woe and hit a Tijuana bomb for the win. The move looked super dangerous. Like Sky easily could have just been dropped on her head. I, I don't know. I didn't like that very much. The match was poor. And while Rosa winning in her return obviously made sense, it probably should have been Abaddon beating Sky given she's challenging for a title the following week, right? On Dynamite, we got Statlander against Blue. So Stoke was on commentary talking about boosting the AEW women's division. I thought he was the ROH general manager or something like that. Why does he give a shit about the AEW women's division suddenly? And why is he always involved with the women, but like never the men in AEW? It's almost like they're like, oh, this is just another person. Let's try to use him to help the women's division because we don't know what else to do. Anyway, getting to the match. Sky hit Code Blue for a false finish. Stat then caught her off the ropes for a roll-through powerbomb. Stat kicked Blue out of the corner, only for Hart to randomly appear and hit Stat with the TBS title. I believe cameras missed the shot. Sky then caught her, though, with a ridiculously awesome avalanche Code Blue for the win. Sky attacked after the bell because that's what has to happen, with Julia hitting a lariat to the back of Stat's head before Sky put in a dragon sleeper. And of course, Willow made the save. But holy shit, she actually hit a couple clotheslines instead of the heels just running away. Stoke on commentary continued to wedge drive for some reason. Abaddon then showed up on the stage to threaten, but she didn't attack and the heels escaped. I like Sky as a heel. I think she's improving to a degree and it's just working better for her character. But really, the only difference is like she stares into the camera and does a dragon sleeper. But I mean, it's better, but it's not that much better, right? The finish was strong uh, with the Avalanche Code Blue. That's really my biggest takeaway from the entire deal. Tony Khan did do a uh, media call right before we taped the show on Thursday, talking about how there's a greater focus on storylines in the AEW women's division. I mean, I don't know where that's the case, like where it's notable that it's more or greater. They've always done that random mixed type of storyline that they're currently doing backstage with Soraya and Ruby Soho and Angelo Parker and all that. They've always done something like that. This is a TBS title storyline. This is a legitimate storyline, but there's really not that much to it. And the opposite of a storyline is happening when it comes to Tony Storm and the Women's Championship, which is the one part of the women's division that should have the most time and attention spent to it. There's literally nothing happening there, as we'll discuss a little bit later in our AEW World's End Ultimate Preview. Before we get to that, we're going to go through all of the Continental Classic matches because there were, I believe, five combined between Collision and Dynamite this week. So entering Collision, 
Brian Danielson and Andrade El Idolo, they had nine points each atop the table, the blue table, with Eddie Kingston trying to force his way into the final, holding just six points entering the show. So Collision opened with Brian Danielson against Claudio Castagnoli. Brian countered Ricola Bomb into a triangle, countered back into a neutralizer. He went for another, but Danielson countered out of it, hitting a psycho knee for another false finish. Then they exchanged, kicking the other's head in, with Claudio focusing on the eye and moving into a sharpshooter with one minute remaining. Claudio put the pressure on with 30 seconds left, then released it with 10 seconds left, trying to quickly get a pinfall, but it ended in an extremely hot time limit draw. The crowd was going bonkers over the final 60 seconds. Danielson wound up laid out on the canvas. He, though, got a point because it was basically a tie to advance to the Blue League final with 10, while Claudio sat up and seemed ready to keep going. They hugged after the bell. What was particularly cool about this match is there were numerous callbacks to their prior matches, not just in WWE, but elsewhere. I counted four callbacks, but there certainly could have been more that I missed or forgot about. Beyond that, the wrestling was excellent. It was the perfect use of a draw between a couple of group members. Grading a match without a winner, it's always difficult because you just don't get that full finishing sequence. But I have this at four stars and an A minus. Great stuff. On Collision, Brody King fought Daniel Garcia, also in the Blue League. The story here was Garcia needing a win to avoid being shut out for the entire tournament. Daddy Magic was on commentary. Garcia hit a strong Saito suplex late in the match for a nice pop. King immediately answered with Death Valley Driver into a huge lariat for a false finish. Then he hit a Gonzo Bomb for a 2.9 false finish and another strong pop. King tried another pile driver, but Garcia flipped him over, got him in a jackknife cover for the upset victory at his last opportunity. Real nice ovation to Garcia getting the win. He held up three fingers. As Brody walked over to him after the bell, the lights went out, House of Black show up, grab his arms, snap his fingers, and then Daddy Magic runs out from commentary to cover him for protection. FTR then makes the save, clearing the ring and cutting a promo, accepting a match. I was actually hoping at the end of this that King would either put over Garcia or he would wave House of Black off and protect him out of respect because he got beat and it was a quality match. It kind of pissed me off that a somewhat meaningless tag team feud overshadowed what should have been a nice moment for Garcia because of his kayfabe losing streak and finally overcoming it. It's probably fine as long as they follow up on it, but this is one of those constant creative issues and consistent criticisms I have for AEW. They try to do too much when simpler is often better. 3.5 stars and a B. Also on collision, we had Eddie Kingston against Andrade in another Blue League match. Eddie got a lot of work in early with Andrade fighting from behind. Andrade later hit three amigos and jumped off the top rope with Kingston struggling to catch him with a dropkick selling a knee. Andrade hit his wife's moonsault outside and a double jump moonsault inside. Kingston blocked the hammerlock DDT, countering into a side to a suplex. Andrade caught Eddie with his back elbow for a false finish. And then he did a dead arm lift 2.9 as part of that. Kingston got a rope break on a figure four leg lock. Kingston stood up and hit two back fists plus a Northern Lights bomb for the sudden victory to move to nine points with a tiebreaker and into the final. My only note, I just wish there was more to the finish to put Andrade in a position for the back fist because he didn't really take any damage that left him then prone to just stand there and take back fist from Kingston. I love the match though, 3.75 stars B+, a solid end to the table portion of the blue side of the bracket. It made sense for Kingston to win for two reasons. One, his titles are up for grabs in the tournament, Two, Andrade already had a feud waiting for him with Miro. And this is what we discussed last week. Giving Andrade that feud on the side telegraphed that he was not coming out of this tournament. And not only that, unlikely to reach the final. And that 
was frustrating for me watching this develop for multiple weeks. On Dynamite, John Moxley, Swerve, and Jay White all fought in the gold final. This was the result of a three-way tie atop the league after table competition concluded. They quickly fought into the crowd and then around ringside. Swerve hit a diving elbow to Mox's neck and a frog splash crossbody outside into both guys. Later, he jumped into nothing and Mox hit a paradigm shift. White wore Mox out with a chair and focused on his knee. Swerve countered White into a crucifix pin that was definitely 100% a 3.1, but they called it a false finish. Then he hit house call with a powerbomb transition into a power slam and a 450 only for Mox to break the fall with a stomp. Swerve took a nasty sleeper suplex from White with Mox putting White in a choke broken by house call. Mox then ate Blade Runner for a broken fall, so White used the chair again and propped it in the corner only for Swerve to reverse him into it. Swerve went on a run, but White pushed him outside to prevent Swerve's stomp. Mox countered Blade Runner with a lariat and then hit Death Rider on White for the win. Straight up excellent match. All three guys were at the top of their game, obviously wanted Swerve to win with hopes of AEW strapping the rocket to him, but I can be patient given the circumstances of the tournament and the obvious booking, at least at the time I thought it was obvious, of Mox and Eddie squaring off in the final. Mox over White was the right move because Jay wasn't really hurt by taking another loss while Swerve had to be protected. Outside of the one botch on the pin count, my only major problem was Mox not selling the knee injury at all, despite it getting crushed over and over again with a chair. That was bad. It's one thing for Cora Jade to forget to sell an injury in NXT. It's quite another for John Moxley to forget to sell an injury in a huge match on AEW television. And it's fair to point out that Mox, you know, he was the most boring winner out of this group. He never really puts anyone over. That may change, and hopefully it will, at world's end. But when you have a match with Jay White, who lost to a one-legged MJF, and Swerve, who's coming out of that big Hangman Page victory, and you have Mox win, again, it makes sense in storyline, but it's not really the most exciting decision. You could even make the argument, White's now been pinned with two guys fighting on one leg, even though Mox didn't sell his. This was exactly what you want in terms of high-end wrestling, storytelling, all of that. 4.25 stars and an A, a real good way to end the Gold League, though I understand why some were even more frustrated than I was with Mox coming out on top. And lastly, when it came to the Continental Classic, Danielson, Kingston, Blue League Final. Eddie was the underdog here, starting 0-2, working his way into the league final and never beating Brian in their careers. There was a short but really solid back-and-forth promo package that preceded this match. Included was Danielson holding that Eddie as a bump sign, and now it makes a lot more sense why they did that when back the moment it happened, if you remember, I was surprised Danielson didn't respect him after their match. Good timing and placement of that sign weeks ago. Kingston hit a Saito suplex and fell into Danielson's face off the ropes midway through. Brian chopped him down, but Eddie answered back with a ton of chops that absolutely destroyed Danielson's chest. Brian came back with a ton of kicks. Eddie avoided the Psycho Knee in the corner and hit a Northern Lights bomb. Danielson countered into a Psycho Knee with a high stack for a false finish. Then he hammered Eddie with elbows and kicked his head in, screaming for him to give up. Kingston flipped him the bird, so Danielson goaded him into standing. Eddie countered a Psycho Knee with a spinning back fist. Then he hit a half and half suplex, missed a back fist, and hit two more plus a power bomb with a high stack for the upset victory. Mox walked down after the bell. He was first to check on Danielson and then to cut a promo on Kingston. He said, all he's ever asked from Eddie is his best. And while Kingston thinks the world is against him, he's actually got a lot of people who love him. 
Mox said, all those people deserves Eddie's maximum effort, but both of them know Kingston can't beat Mox, which means he's already lost. Mox promised he'd give him no favors, and if Kingston wanted to be a Triple Crown champion like all of his heroes, he'd have to earn every inch. Eddie then stole the mic saying, he ain't a young boy bitch. He promised to give Mox everything he has, said he would bust him up. He also called himself King of the Bums, which I just thought was a great nickname for Eddie, for any wrestler, but especially Eddie Kingston, King of the Bums. So if you think I liked the last match, I absolutely fucking loved this match. Literally, my only note would have been having Kingston deliver the last two backfists to the bad side of Danielson's face instead of the good side for bonus impact. Why would you not do that? But that's literally my only note. This was a perfectly executed match with Brian looking stronger and more dominant throughout, only for Eddie's passion, perseverance, and never say die attitude to win out in the end. It's exactly the way you book someone like him as an underdog. The stage was set perfectly and he delivered. Then you get the post-match with Mox, really solid lean into World's End. To some degree, I wish this was done a week ago so we could have gotten one or two more promo segments between them, but it nevertheless delivered on both ends. I went 4.25 stars and an A, but the Mox triple threat, I would say 425 down to four, like that's your area. Whereas this was 4.25 up to 4.5. So on the higher end, no question about it. The match of the night, one of the best matches of the entire tournament. Now, in terms of final takeaways on the Continental Classic, the wrestling aspect of it was exceptional. The best tournament of the year in the United States, any brand. It also included some of the best AEW television matches of the year. The forced triple crown element with the creation of another new title, it's been this unnecessary component the entire time. With Kingston now in the final defending those titles, it actually makes more sense why that was done because this stuff matters way more to him than anyone else. We saw that in his promo after going down 0-2. But we're gonna have to see how this is utilized in the future because this classic, this tournament, easily just could have been for an AEW title match at a major show, like double or nothing, and been way less convoluted than it is having someone enter, give up both his titles, create a new title, and then all of a sudden that's a triple crown just because AEW and Tony Khan want to do something similar to All Japan. But like, again, even though that part of it is odd and the usage of the Continental Championship and what's going to happen in next year's Continental Classic, does the title go on the line and the winner becomes champion, but it also can be won in regular matches throughout the year? Like, how all that's going to work matters. Still, despite all of that, I would say this is the most successful tournament that AEW has ever put together. And while I understand some people were not attracted to it because it was mostly just pure wrestling, it hit for me as a viewer, especially the second half once points started getting divvied up and storylines began to generate out of the tables. So all in all, I would give AEW two thumbs up for the Continental Classic. With that said, let's go ahead and move to your AEW World's End Ultimate Preview. There are currently 10 matches booked for the show, one of which will be, I presume, on whatever they're going to call the kickoff, zero hour, whatever the case, whatever it's going to be. Uh, that is a 20-man battle royal for a future AEW TNT Championship match. We don't know any participants in the match. There's still, you know, Rampage and I'm assuming Collision, both to go before uh, World's End. So really just taking a guess here, but I'll go ahead and predict Daniel Garcia wins that match coming out of having won his last Continental Classic match, gets a chance at the TNT title. Just a shot in the dark 
no idea. The other nine matches have been built to different degrees of success uh, on AEW TV over, of course, the last couple of months, but really the last couple of weeks. We're going to go ahead, break all of those down match by match, including some straggler elements that happened on TV this past week. Of course, we're going to give predictions and picks for all of them, and we will wrap it up with a pre-show expectation grade for AEW World's End. So let's start with the FTW Championship match, Hook defending against Wheeler Yuta. Hook sat on a stoop on collision, presumably in the Bronx, accepting the challenge for the title, but saying it would be under FTW rules. Thank you! Finally, they got it right. An FTW title match under FTW rules, which every FTW match should be under. There's been no real development or consistency with Hook. Sometimes we see him when they need a pay-per-view match. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes he wrestles a few matches over a couple months. Sometimes he doesn't. There's no reason to care about this. Even the feud is basically like, I kind of dislike you, so I want to take your title. And there's not really much to it. I'm going to have Hook retaining. I don't know what putting another title on Yuta does, and it's FTW, Hook, and Taz. That all works together. I just don't think the FTW title needs to exist anymore. Certainly not in the way it's being utilized. But we'll go ahead and have Hook win. TBS Championship, Julia Hart defending against Abaddon. We already discussed you know, what happened on TV regarding this match. But you're not putting the title on Julia Hart, having taken it off of stat, only to have her lose it to Abaddon. And again, Abaddon was built up for three weeks just so that she could have this match. And then she, I'm assuming she's going to disappear after this. So Julia goes ahead, wins the match, retains the title. And I have to assume down the line, stat will eventually fight her again and win it off of her. Or maybe they actually elevate stat up to the main part of the women's division and she takes the title off Tony Storm. That would make a lot of sense in the future. Regardless, Julia Hart retains here. So they announced Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, Darby Allen, and Sting against Ricky Starks, Big Bill, Powerhouse Hobbs, and Kyle Fletcher. This stemming from what we already discussed happened on Dynamite. Konosuke Takeshka not involved. Who knows why, even though he might actually be the best wrestler who could potentially have been in this match. Uh, so like I said, this was announced at the end of Dynamite, replacing the tag team title match for the show. I presume Jericho and Guevara will challenge for the titles on TV at a later date. Because of the circumstances and no titles being on the line, I also believe if memory serves, Sting is undefeated in AEW. Well, that tells me who's going to win this match. The baby faces go ahead and win Jericho, Guevara, Allen, and Sting. Good to see Darby back. I guess he either paused his training of climbing Mount Everest or he's done. I don't exactly know what's going on with him. We also have Miro against Andrade El Idolo. On Dynamite, we saw the same Miro promo from last week with Excalibur telling us afterward that it was a challenge and the match was booked for World's End. Again, let me repeat. It was the same promo he already cut. And best I heard, maybe I'm wrong, no specific challenge was uttered, let alone accepted. This is the definition of something being thrown on a card. And beyond that, as I noted before, the fact that Andrade had a feud being built outside of the classic completely telegraphed that he was not going to win it. I'm not totally sure what they are going to do here. You know, when we were talking about the Continental Classic and Andrade was winning, I said, you know, maybe they've kind of patched things up. He and, and Tony Khan, and he's going to stay with AEW long-term. And he's not going to look out at the end of this co contract. But that was based on people he was beating. My expectation, he might be in the final and might actually be in the ultimate final and challenge for the title at World's End, except he lost on the way. And now he's fighting Miro, who's trying to get his wife back. Miro, who, by the way, 
has only had six matches since Collision debuted six months ago. None of them majorly impactful is six and oh in those matches. And this is his first storyline, except he wasn't really able to tell it because Andrade was busy in the Continental Classic. Miro has not lost a singles match in AEW since November 2021. Now, granted, he missed pretty much all of 2022, but still, he has not lost a singles match since November 2021. And I don't think he and CJ Perry, hot and flexible, I messed that up. I should have called her hot and flexible off the jump. Damn me. That's a na-na for the Silver King. Na-na! Uh, I don't think they're going to be having him lose at the start of that story. So I'm picking Mirror to win, but I can't really make sense of this at all. It could go either way, and I don't think it matters which way it goes. I'll tell you that this next match, it does matter which way it goes. That's Keith Lee against Swerve Strickland. This got made official on Dynamite. Was Swerve angry backstage after losing the triple threat? He said he heard Keith was looking for him. And Tony Schiavone just so happened to not only know that Keith was looking for him, but have a match contract in his hand. This was probably Swerve's worst promo in months. And it was kind of appropriate because this match just got thrown together just to give Swerve a significant win over someone who's been irrelevant for the last year. I do believe they will put on a quality match. I do believe that match will exceed expectations, but there is no excuse for the way this was dropped and then restarted like 10, 11 months later without even rebuilding Keith back into a legitimate challenger. Swerve absolutely has to win this freaking match. If you have Keith beat Swerve, then everything he's accomplished recently, it doesn't get flushed down the toilet, but it just doesn't make sense that you'd have him lose in a situation like this. Swerve wins. It's another feather in his cap. And hopefully he goes on to bigger and better things, such as, I don't know, maybe the international championship. That would make a lot of sense. The women's championship, we have Tony Storm against Rio. On collision, Tony was interviewed about her title match. She didn't say much, but basically ignored Mariah May, who said she had her wrestling license, but no planned opponent. I hate to say it, this timeless gimmick is starting to wear on me, at least as long as Storm treats it in a way that she's unable to actually do her job building a match and opponent. Mariah then showed up on Dynamite for a stage interview, stating her in-ring debut will come next week to kick off 2024. Rio chased her to the ring. Tony followed and got saved by Lutha, only for Rio to splash both of them off the ropes. So she doesn't know who Mariah is, but she's saving her from a Rio attack. Regarding Mariah, the promo was weak as hell. I realized one thing that hurts my suspension of disbelief with Tony is that she has a massive tattoo on her calf which I don't have a problem with like at all, her body, her choice, all that. But a starlet in the era that she's playing, this timeless character, would never have anything like that. Or if they did, they'd completely cover it up. And the Rio stuff. There's just no real storyline here. Rio comes back, is like, I want a chance at the title. She, now, credit to Rio and, and AEW, they did have her win a couple matches to legitimize herself before she got the opportunity. But there's no real storyline. You have Tony doing these comedy gimmicks that don't actually relate to Rio, even if she says that she's small and she could eat her. It's simply booked as like a quality wrestling match and Storm is going to look good coming out of it, retaining the title. And that's fine if you're doing it for TV. But if you're talking about improved women's storylines and actually booking things, then you got to do better than this for a pay-per-view, especially your year-end show, this big show to take you into 2024. So that's immensely disappointing. 
Let's move to the TNT Championship, Christian Cage against Adam Copeland, no disqualification. On collision, Christian entered with Nick Wayne before introducing his mom, Shayna, who explained that she did what any mother would do, protecting her son after Copeland smashed his head with a chair. She said it was clear Christian was the only one who cared about Nick as much as her. Thankfully, Christian got the mic back, putting over Shayna for working to support her son and saying he wished Copeland's mother was still alive so she could disown him for being mean to single mothers. Then he accepted the fight for World's End, promising to put him down on behalf of all single mothers. Shayna's motivation made complete sense, as we've discussed for a couple weeks now. I'm just being honest with this opinion, though. I legitimately cannot find myself caring about any of this. And I think I know the reason why. Edge and Christian, let's just call him Edge for the sake of this, they've so thoroughly broken kayfabe throughout their careers, especially since they both retired, that it's tough to see them fighting and having this immense hatred for each other as anything but purely fake. And that is one of the problems with breaking kayfabe or just not having a strong enough story where it makes sense that they actually hate each other because Cage hasn't really done anything to Copeland. Yeah, he tried to maybe keep him from AEW or didn't welcome him with open arms. And they, they kind of told that story. But this is like a this has become a blood feud. And it doesn't fit when we know for a fact that Copeland said on his opening promo, the reason he went to AEW is because his daughter wanted him wrestling with his best friend again. Jay, he even used his real name. So if you're going to break kayfabe in that regard, right off the top, then telling me all of a sudden these guys hate each other and want to kill each other just doesn't really work without a really strong storyline behind it. And I'm sorry, Nick Wayne and his mother is not a storyline that I give a shit about to lead to an Edge and Christian meeting. So that's how I feel. On Dynamite, Christian was complaining about waiting all day for Copeland to show up for an interview segment, only to be attacked in the director's chair. The locker room ultimately poured out, pulled them apart. It was a nice intensity here. Uh, it didn't do much to increase my level of interest in the match for all the reasons already stated. Nothing wrong with any of this. I just don't particularly care about it that much. Now, in terms of a prediction here, it's actually kind of difficult, right? Because what I see happening is Luchasaurus returning. And what would make the most sense is for Luchasaurus to return and turn on Christian, take him out with the title or something like that, leaving the door open for Adam Copeland to win the TNT title. But Christian is doing such a great job with the TNT championship. And I don't know that Copeland would actually succeed with it or that it would be that interesting for him to have it. But because it's the no disqualification stipulation, it does create that opening for Luchasaurus to do that. The other option is that Luchasaurus literally comes in and just sides with Christian again and attacks Copeland with a chair and Christian wins and Copeland takes a concerto maybe and goes out of action and then comes back. Christian's already dropped the title. He fights Christian and beats him. Like there's ways you can go with it. So what makes the most sense is actually Copeland winning and taking the title. But I don't think that's what they're going to book because Christian is doing such a good job with the TNT championship and the person who beats him for it really should be a younger talent that gets over because of it. So I'm going to go ahead and, and make a prediction for Christian winning. But if Copeland does win, just clarifying, that makes a lot more sense, especially if Luchasaurus turns and is the reason for that happening. So let's move to the finals of the Continental Classic, which really should be the co-main event of this show, Eddie Kingston against John Moxley. And this one's simple. It has to be Kingston. Otherwise, 
what's the point of this specific match being booked in this way? You could argue that there was no reason for there to be an entire tournament to book a match that easily could have been put together utilizing stories that already exist, including Mox kind of saying to Kingston, if you want me, you got to go through Blackpool Combat Club to get to me because that is what happened. He worked through all of BCC, his greatest rival, Claudio Castagnoli, his tormentor, Brian Danielson, and now his sometimes best friend, sometimes rival, John Moxley. Like That's what they're doing. So giving Mox the title accomplishes absolutely nothing, unless their only thought is, well, because this also shares some lineage with New Japan Strong's title, they're going to want Mox in Japan more than they're going to want Eddie. But even then, it doesn't really make sense because the whole point of this is to be a triple crown. And Eddie Kingston is the only one in AEW, it seems, that actually gives a shit about the All Japan Triple Crown. So he should be the only one to win it in AEW, or at least the first one to win it in AEW. This is the equivalent of giving like a world title to Kingston, at least on the AEW main roster. They gave him the ROH title. You know, no one really remembers that because he was in Ring of Honor. But even if it's a fake Triple Crown, it would be a lifetime accomplishment for him because he's not going to win the All Japan title. It's going to happen in New York, even though it would be Long Island. So you have to believe Kingston's going over. It's going to be one of the biggest moments in his career. would be one of the biggest pops on the entire show. And I don't really know what other analysis there is to do. I think the match is going to bang. Maybe the only question is like, at what timestamp in the match does John Moxley blade? You know, I'll put that over under... Four minutes, <laughs> you know, at this point, he blades right away once the bell rings, maybe. Uh, but Eddie wins. It should be a great moment. And it'll be a nice capper to the tournament, even if they did not, again, need to do the entire Continental Classic just to make Kingston a triple crown champion, just to establish the title. And as I said earlier, what matters more than really Eddie winning here or how it wraps up here is how the Continental Championship is going to be utilized in the future on AEW TV, presumably on New Japan TV. And even beyond that, when we get to next year's Continental Classic, does the person kind of relinquish the title to join? I know the person who holds it automatically gets in. Does the winner of the Continental Classic get a number one contendership for that title? Is that the purpose of it going forward? And if so, if like Eddie or whoever the champion is enters and wins, do they then pick their opponent, which is the way G1 Climax works. So there's a lot of questions still unanswered. Maybe we will find out at World's End. And let's wrap this up with what should undoubtedly be the main event of the show, the AEW Championship on the line, MJF against Samoa Joe. But we do have a lot to talk about before we break down that match. Because on Dynamite, there was an ROH Tag Team Championship match, MJF and Joe, set to defend the titles against the Devil's Goons. So I want to put you in my perspective coming into this, okay? I'm watching this show, a little bit delayed because I had other things going on. My mom was over. We were hanging out, whatever. But I, I watch Dynamite, and I'm not looking on Twitter. I don't want anything to get spoiled for me. The ring entrances start. The goons come out. And I look at my clock, and there is 90 seconds left in Dynamite. And I'm thinking to myself, how the hell is this possible? Right? Like the show's going to end. I know AEW has been doing overruns recently. Maybe it's a minute, maybe it's two minutes, whatever. But if they're going to do a whole match and storyline with the devil involved, 
You're going to have to have more, more time than this. So the two goons enter from the crowd without music. MJF comes out. Joe does not. And then after his music played, we see on the big screen, he's laid out backstage, grabbing his knee, almost doing the Peter Griffin type of meme thing and screaming. And as Joe is screaming, my recording cuts off. Now, everything else I'm going to tell you right now, I'm working off of social media clips. I have not been able to find the final five minutes of the show. So all I know as I give you this preview, and it's not like sarcasm or not me being an ass or anything, I can only go off the information I have. I've read recaps as well, but I don't have the visual for you. So MJF demanded to have the match even though Joe got injured. I assume the bell rang. He went after the mask of one guy as another crawled out from under the ring and drilled him with a pipe. Then I have no idea what happened. The next clip I saw, Joe is standing in the ring with a chair. I presume he beat the goons away or ran them away with the chair, scared them away and saved MJF. Then I saw the devil on the screen with the written line, pleasure doing business with with you before Joe attacked MJF with a steel chair, just like Seth Rollins when he turned on Roman Reigns and the shield. And he screamed, Joe did, I did this to you. Then he hit a muscle buster. Then I saw a graphic that said, the devil's masked men are the new ROH tag team champions. So I presume they pinned MJF before this happened. When I went to read the recap, apparently one of them hit Heatseeker on MJF, which is of course one of his finishing moves. So before I even get to the booking, let me just say first that AEW's new obsession with the overrun and like Tony Khan announcing, thank you so much to Warner Brothers Discovery for giving us a five minute overrun to Dynamite. Why do you need the overrun? Like, I understand the ratings game they're playing. I get that. Don't get me wrong. But like, I use YouTube TV. I made the switch from cable. I was an Xfinity user for, it feels like decades, right? I went over to YouTube TV, which is great. And if anyone happens to be interested, I have a discount code. You can get $50 off. DM the Silver King at Getting Overcast. I'll share it with you. I'll get a couple bucks myself. But I love it. I legitimately do. But when you record on YouTube TV, you're at their mercy, right? You cannot like extend a recording X number of minutes like I could on Xfinity. I can extend it one, five, I think, or 30 minutes, right? And you can't one-off record shows that air after other shows. So like, let's just make believe Big Bang Theory aired immediately after Dynamite. On a regular DVR, you can just record that next episode to make sure you don't miss anything. You can't do that on YouTube TV because whatever you record after, it will record every single thing and when it comes to a show like Dynamite and the time of evening that it ends, there's not a, the same show that's always immediately after it on TBS. Sometimes it could be sports. Sometimes it could be a sitcom. Sometimes it could be a movie. So you can't even have a consistent post-Dynamite recording. So I literally have no way to watch the end of the show on my television. I was completely shit out of luck. And like I said, completely relied on social media. Now, lucky for me, AEW did post like a 50 second clip, a minute and a half clip and another two minute clip. So I got most of what I just told you from watching it, but I wasn't able to just like watch their product, which you should do. And I believe I'm correct that YouTube TV is the most popular entire quote unquote cable TV streamer right now. So people like me were not able to see the end of the show. I was just totally shit out of luck. So I was pissed off and I think rightfully so. I think this is a legitimate complaint. Now, in terms of what happened, the title change makes it seem obvious that Kingdom is the new champions and working in concert with the devil, as we've assumed all along. Another option could be like Red Dragon 
or Kyle O'Reilly returning alongside Roderick Strong. Wardlow, I'm almost positive, was the guy under the ring with the pipe. He was just bigger and he looked taller and it just made a lot of sense for it to be him. Let's also remember, as we're trying to like dive into the storyline aspect, Adam Cole was the one who originally suggested MJF work with Joe. And they have pertinent history together from NXT. Devil you know, so on. So more than ever, it makes it seem like the devil is Cole, or as we've mentioned previously, it could be Britt Baker working on behalf of her significant other. Now, Roderick Strong could work as well. That's far less exciting, and I also feel like it's less likely, but he has been the fool throughout this entire situation. And obviously, Adam Cole chose MJF over him. They hugged in the ring after All In. The devil started soon after that. It would make sense for Strong to want to get back at both of them by concocting this entire devil deal, playing the fool in front of everyone for the public and actually being the mastermind behind the scenes. I don't necessarily think that Strong has the acting chops to pull that off, but he's also exceeded my expectations in the comedy gimmick that he's doing, even though I actually don't like it, but he's actually doing a fine job doing what they're attempting to accomplish. Just, I want you to all remember the fact that if it is Brit as the devil, the reason that would be flawed is because she could pretty much never get her comeuppance from MJF. And that's important when you do a reveal like this. The problem with Cole, obviously, is that he's supposedly injured and out for a couple more months. So either he had a real ankle injury and they exaggerated it and maybe used fake x-rays to throw people off so they could do this story, or he has a real ankle injury and it's as bad as they say, and maybe they unmask the devil and it turns out that the guy can't wrestle, right? So there's all these issues potentially with it being Cole. And let's just be honest that it does seem like the devil reveal is coming Saturday. The storyline has already overstated its welcome and it absolutely needs to wrap up. I'll also point out though, that the booking and execution of this entire storyline, it remains immensely hokey. The idea has been strong from the start, the idea, but the execution has been rough, including MGF being pinned here again days before a pay-per-view, regardless of the circumstances, the odds that he had against him, taking the pipe shot. Let's not forget also, Joe gave up a match against an injured MJF, which he almost certainly would have won coming out of All In, to work with the devil to injure MJF so he gets a match against him that he's almost certainly going to win. That makes no sense. Why would he not have just taken the match initially, won the title, and moved on with his life? I guess it's possible that like it was a leverage play, but that would need, have needed to be made clear weeks ago, and now there's no time to do that. Also, that's me trying to help it make sense. So the one thing I think is pretty damn clear is that by the time World's End concludes, we're gonna know who the devil is. And we've laid out probably, I would say, the best options here. Obviously, going with someone like Jungle Boy Jack Perry and the real glass you know, that's been hinted at throughout this entire thing, that's another way they can go. Dolph Ziggler, of course, coming from uh, WWE, Nick Nemeth, certainly possible. I think Ziggler would be the one, I said this last week, who actually gets a pop where you're like, oh shit, it's Dolph Ziggler. Like, that's pretty cool, right? 
I don't know the way I'm going to feel if it's anyone else. And I probably can't even tell you that until it actually happens. And I see the way they book it and the way I react to it. But because Joe is the one challenging for the title, as much as I am telling you this right now, I would love it if Samoa Joe was the AEW champion and him relinquishing the ROH TV title would make a lot more sense if the plan was to strap him up here. But as much as I want to believe that that's the plan to strap up Joe, you just had MJF beat Jay White on one leg. Are you really not gonna have him beat Samoa Joe and retain the title and the devil then show himself afterward? That just makes the most sense. So I have MJF retaining, the devil being unveiled. And if you want a bonus prediction on who the devil is, let me go ahead and do like percentages. Just because again, it I don't know that any of the answers are are that exciting at the end of the day. Uh, I'll say Adam Cole, you know, is 65%. Britt Baker, 15%, which puts them together at 80%. And then you can split the other 20% up among, you know, Dolph Ziggler, Roderick Strong, and Jack Perry, and just even it out between them. I think the most likely option is that it's Cole or Baker for Cole. But again, we will find out, you know, Saturday at AEW World's End. So folks, with all of that said, let's go ahead and wrap up the ultimate preview with our pre-show expectation grade for World's End and, and kind of going through this card It's not the strongest pay-per-view, though the matches are all real interesting and have a high level of potential. Like, even if you just go down the card, like MJF Samojo could very well be match of the night. Eddie Kingston, John Moxley could very well be match of the night. Christian and Copeland, you know it's going to be good no matter how it transpires and no matter what the booking is. Storm and Rio has a chance to be an exceptional women's match for AEW but there's not really a storyline to care about it. Keith and Swerve, as mentioned, Miro and Andrade, both of those can be absolute bangers, but the way in which they were concocted, when you come in, you just don't really care about either of them. The eight-man tag is completely worthless. It really should not be on this card at all. They really just did it because they wanted Jericho and Sting on there. And also there's no Kenny Omega, no Young Bucks, no Hangman Page. So they probably felt, Tony probably felt, I gotta get Jericho and Sting on the card. Julia Hart and Abaddon is a TV feud, a TV match. I'm glad there's two women matches on the card, but it shouldn't be there. Julia obviously is gonna win. And then the FTW thing I don't care about. And the Battle Royal, I don't really care about either. So it's not really the strongest card in terms of storytelling and booking and creative, but it does have a chance to be a strong card from a match quality standpoint. And that is where AEW generally hangs its hat. So coming in, I'm gonna give it a B plus expectation grade. I think that, if I gave it a B, then it would have an even greater chance of exceeding my expectations. So I think B plus is appropriate, gives them an equal opportunity on both sides of the coin to exceed or fall below. And I do expect it to be a really solid show to wrap up 2023. Of course, the AEW World's End Instant Analysis Podcast episode that we'll have once that show goes off the air, that will be our final episode of 2023. So you are not going to want to miss that. In terms of what's ahead here, on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Besides that show, we will be back on Tuesday with your next WWE episode. I wanna make sure everyone knows we published a special WWE show last Friday as our final such show of 2023. 
be sure to listen to that. It includes a ton of stuff from SmackDown, a full recap, I should say, of SmackDown, along with a number of WWE news items. Make sure you listen to that. Also make sure you listen to the 2023 year in review episode, which was published on Tuesday. Back to the forthcoming schedule. WWE on Tuesday, next Thursday, AEW and NXT, and the Monday following on January 9th, you will have your 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties. A ballot for those awards will be out no later than this Friday. Be sure to vote over the weekend. Balloting will close early next week. And you can find that ballot on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That is where we give you episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and all of that good stuff. It's also where you can submit questions and comments for the show via tweet or DM. Again, at Getting Overcast. Please also remember to vote for Getting Over in the 2023 Sports Podcast Awards. You can find the link in our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast. You want to vote Getting Over for Best Wrestling Podcast is 100% a fan vote, totally based on email addresses. And as I have said previously, there are plenty of ways to find additional email addresses on the internet. So you can vote for Getting Over as frequently as you want stuff that ballot box. We would love to be the best wrestling podcast of 2023. One more time, you can find the link on our Twitter feed at Getting Overcast. On the way out, let me hit you with a couple more reminders first that this show is all about Defy. So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave some five-star ratings on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you get exclusive audio, exclusive news posts, and more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all so much for listening to the penultimate episode of 2023. We will be back with that AEW World's End Instant Analysis Saturday night. As soon as that show goes off the air, that will be our final episode of the year. And at that time, wish you a happy 2024. But it is officially time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.